From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Starting next week, the sale of recreational marijuana will begin in Rhode Island in 2023 is lining up to be a big year for the cannabis market as a new commission will decide how to issue licenses for new recreational shops and how those businesses will be watched over then. Even with increased wages aren't enough to keep up with the high cost of living. More people in Rhode Island are having trouble consistently putting food on the table. A new report examines why and what can be done on the second half. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White in for Ted Nisi, my colleague from Target 12, Steph Machado. On the second half of the program, we'll have Andrew Schiff uh, from the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. But first, joining us for the program, Matt Santa Cruz, the Chief of Office of Cannabis Regulation, and he's also Interim Deputy Director of the Department of Business Regulation. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. We're obviously having you on the show because, as I said in the open there, December 1st, <clears throat> next Thursday, um, recreational marijuana will be legal for sale in Rhode Island. For yep. people 21 years of age or older, they can go to one of for now, it's five shops, I believe, yep. that uh, and they can purchase cannabis. What are you expecting that day on December 1st? So it's an exciting day for Rhode Island. It's, it's an exciting day for our cannabis industry. Uh, we are expecting um, a, a fair amount of excitement as, as Rhode Island consumers, obviously ages 21 and above, um, and non-medical patients for the first time get a chance to buy cannabis products in Rhode Island, locally produced, locally processed, locally manufactured, and locally sold. Um, as you mentioned, we have five retail outlets that are uh, that are ready to go. Open their doors on the Monday, uh, a week from uh, sorry, excuse me, in the morning, a week from tomorrow. Um, we've had boots on the ground in these facilities for for a couple of weeks um, with intensity, making sure that they're going to be able to serve both this new adult use market and um, continue to maintain their levels of service um, and product availability for the medical marijuana consumer as well. I had a question about that. Is there a risk that for the, the patients that rely on the medical marijuana, when there's suddenly a, a, an influx of you know, sales to the recreational market, is there a risk that the product for medical marijuana patients could run dry? So that risk absolutely exists, and that's why we're very intentional in the application, in our inspections, and in our um, in our requirements for these retailers to get licensed for adult use, that they're able to prove to us essentially that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. So this is everything from uh, ensuring that they have people in the parking lot to escort medical marijuana patients into the building, not have to stand in an adult use line, having private patient consultation areas where a medical marijuana patient can explore product availability, can discuss a medical condition that they might need uh, relief from with an expert, in the privacy of an enclosed space. Um, and that's sort of the front of the house uh, stuff. And then the back of the house requirements that we've asked them to, to sort of lay out to us is, what are you gonna be setting aside? How much product and inventory are you gonna be maintaining for a medical marijuana consumer? Um, and what types of products, the higher potency captures, uh, cap capsules, tinctures, that sort of thing that, uh, that are truly um, necessary and important for, for a large number of medical marijuana consumers. That was all something we asked to see before providing this retail sort of privilege to the medical marijuana compassion centers. They have a very significant market opportunity here, and it's important that in exchange for that, they're able to, they, they, they are uh, committed to and are able to ongoingly maintain their medical marijuana business. Hey Matt, what are you expecting in terms of prices? Because we know the taxes <coughs> on the recreational cannabis is gonna be 20%, but will the prices you think be higher or lower than medical, higher or lower than Massachusetts? So I think the, um, the before tax price between medical and adult use will be relatively similar. 
um, relatively uh, constant. By and large, from an economic perspective, these products are perfect substitutes. Um, you know, an eighth of flour for a medical consumer is by and large the, eighth, the same as an eighth of flour for, for an adult use consumer. Um, the tax difference, though, so the price that shows up at the customer is there. Um, so the point of sale price, the out the door price for a medical consumer will be lower um, in Rhode Island than it is for an adult use consumer, which is important. In terms of Massachusetts, um, I do expect that you'll see, on average, um, uh, noticeably lower prices, um, uh, particularly for flour products and concentrates. Um, in Rhode Island than you've seen for Mass than you currently see for Massachusetts. Although you know what's happening in, in the retail level in Massachusetts is starting to kind of soften as well. So um, it, it may, in the long run, kind of level out. And because the price with taxes is going to be less for medical um, patients, do you anticipate sort of tightening that medical market and sort of enforcing so that it's really just people with legitimate medical conditions who will be able to buy medical marijuana and everyone else has to go buy the recreational pot and pay the 20% tax? So this is a great example of a thing that we um, are uh, very intentionally going to be looking at over the next probably year of this implementation period with the Rhode Island Department of Health, which as you know, sort of controls the qualification for patients. Um, as medical experts to get uh, uh, into the program. We are gonna be effective March 1 of 2023, eliminating the opportunity for um, out-of-state patient cardholders to purchase on the medical market in Rhode Island. That was in the Adult Use Act. That'll go into effect in a few months. That's an example of a first step towards tightening the sort of eligibility for the medical program. And it recognizes the reality that, you know, if you're coming in by and large with an out-of-state patient card to buy medical marijuana in Rhode Island that is functionally an adult use purchase. You can just go buy it at the adult use counter at one of our licensed retailers. So but, no, no more logging on to the California website and getting a card in 30 minutes. And, exactly, and being exactly, able to shop. exactly. And that just recognizes this new reality of where we are with cannabis in the state. So Matt, uh, <coughs> for a lot of people at home, uh, you know, when they went and they voted, uh, you know, earlier this month, they saw a ballot question on there about whether or not, uh, for most communities, whether or not they wanted to allow recreational shops in their community. So a lot of people who don't follow it as closely as Steph Machado, don't follow it as closely as Matt Santa Cruz, will think, oh, well, then a marijuana shop is going to be opening in my, you know, in my town when there wasn't one there before, uh, if it had uh, passed a, the referendum. But a lot has to happen before shops start popping up. The Cannabis Control Commission has to be selected by the governor. That's right. Um, they have to promulgate the, the rules on how <coughs> licenses are going to be issued. What's yep. your best guess on when shops are going to start opening up beyond the medical marijuana shops that we have now that are licensed now to sell recreational? It's a great question, um, and I know it's on a lot of people's minds. I think that the best guess is based on what's happened in other states. Um, I think on average, states like Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut have seen that have sort of executed and implemented similar models to what you just described, have seen run times in the neighborhood of 12 to maybe 18 months from the nomination of a commission all the way through the opening of new stores. Again, that's like a benchmark reference that's happened in other states. I don't know specifically if that's gonna be generalizable here in Rhode Island. I know that the governor and his team are looking hard at, um, at commission appointments and are hoping to get those in as soon as possible in the new year. Um, but to your point though, a lot needs to happen once that commission comes into place in order therefore in order for there to be new retail stores, you need to have rules and regulations that are going to be very detailed and span hundreds of pages and really address everything in the adult use market from packaging and labeling to the allocation methodology for new licenses and everything in between. Um, then based on those rules and regulations, an application needs to be created. People need to fill that application out. 
the regulatory entity needs time to evaluate those applications and award the licenses, and then the people that are awarded those licenses then open the doors for retail sales. So, you know, that takes time. It's really hard. It needs to take time. The details matter in this work. Um, and so I'd expect that process will get started early next year and probably carry through much of 2023. So it could be 2024 before we see additional stores open. I don't think we can rule that out. But again, a lot depends on, on what happens kind of in January and February. And, you know, the new Cannabis Commission will be deciding exactly how they're going to decide <clears throat> who gets the rest of these retail licenses up to 33 stores total. Um, DBR did a lottery method for the medical um, dispensaries that you awarded last year. What yep. do you think is the best method for the rest of these retail stores? Is it a random lottery? Is it merit-based? Is it just rolling applications first come, first serve? Yeah, so you know it's premature to have a point of view on that. Um, certainly the commission appropriately is gonna have a, a very significant opportunity to, um, to form a point of view on that. It's a, big, it's a big and important question to work through. What DBR will do is advise the commission on why we did what we did um, last year with respect to the medical licenses, what, is, what other states have done, what has worked well in other states in the past, um, and ultimately, you know, uh, it'll be up to the commission to, to specifically decide on how, what, and when that license selection process is going to look like. Well, let me just ask you, is there anything that you regret about the system that you used for the medical dispensaries with the lottery? Anything you would have changed now that you've done it? I think that the concept was sound, and I stand by it, and I do it the same way, um, again, in a heartbeat. I think that the details, particularly around local zoning, knowing what we know now, could have been um, tightened up a little bit. Um, but, you know, at the time, I think it was the right decision. We were trying to get the lottery done as quickly as possible and get these licenses stood up as quickly as possible. Um, and I think we accomplished that in a fair, transparent, highly transparent um, and, and replicatable process. I'm very happy about that. Matt, uh, as you know, a few weeks ago, uh, Target 12 revealed a, a top staffer to the House Speaker was a business associate uh, along with a known mob associate in a marijuana grow operation. Now, it led to a state police investigation, and the video on the screen right now is state police evidence of a meeting between those two individuals in the shadow of the State House. Um, this investigation prompted your office to take action um, because they did not disclose their involvement in that business. DBR shut the business down, and many people point to that and say, well, the system works there. But one of the things that we learned in our reporting there is if an individual does not disclose their involvement with a marijuana business as required by law, there are no consequences for the individual. The business can be shut down or sanctions can happen on the business. Yep. With the industry on the cusp of exploding, does that need to be addressed, Matt? Should there be liability for those who seek to remain in the shadows? You know, it's a great question, and it's one that I think will remain on the table. I know the attorney general is looking at that from a criminal perspective. I think that as we get into the process of developing with this new commission, full adult use, adult use rules and regulations, and, and, and along the same time, looking at potential revisions to the medical regs, um, I think there's a real um, clear opportunity to tighten up specific instances of where disclosure um, uh, needs to happen, at what level it needs to happen, and what the consequences are for non-disclosure, particularly in as much from DBR's perspective, that ought to affect somebody's go-forward eligibility for participation in the licensing industry. What about staffing for your office, though? I mean, yeah. this is an investigation that spanned two years. It involved yep. the State Police Intelligence Unit. It involved your office, a really big consent agreement between the former company, Organic Bees, and the state 
that uh, shut them down. Uh, it was a very involved investigation. Do you have the capacity from a staffing level right now for oversight of the industry as it's on the cusp of exploding? So I'm very proud of the work our team did um, on that matter. Um, stand by at 100%, and I'm sure you saw um, in the course of your investigation the amount of work that went into that, and we're, very, we're very proud of the result. Um, the legislature, um, which deserves a, a ton of credit for their um, for their leadership on this issue, generally um, their passage of a very rational and, and, and logical adult use legalization framework in the bill, um, uh, also made a significant investment in DBR in the budget. Um, we're going to be growing our staff from uh, eight FTEs currently to something in the neighbor, neighborhood of 25. A lot of that is going to be um, heavily focused on uh, investigation and audit capacity. Because to your point, um, you know, you can make an argument. I, I have the particular point of view that we are, you know, fine and staffed in an adequate level for the for the resources that we currently have at the level of the industry currently exists. But with 33 retail stores, potentially more cultivators, manufacturers, processors down the road, and a growing and thriving market, you know, we need to continue to staff up, and we're in the process of doing that. Okay. Matthew, people who don't want to go to a store can grow cannabis at home yep. under um, Rhode Island's new law. Are you concerned or how concerned are you about the black market? Because there is going to be cannabis being grown outside of the regulated DBR system. So we've had, as you know, Steph, uh, uh, a thriving medical marijuana home grow market um, program here in Rhode Island for, for a number of years um, for patients and caregivers. This new um, uh, recreational home grow privilege I don't think is going to meaningfully change much from the current state. It's a small number of plants per dwelling, three immature and three mature plants, um, again, per household. That's really primarily something that's, that's personal use scale. Um, and to the extent that that's creating diversion into the illicit market, you know, we work closely with law enforcement to, to kind of suss that out if and when it's happening. Um, but, you know, I don't share uh, a great deal of concern that, that this new home grow privilege is going to meaningfully change much on that front. How do you know, though, that people are adhering to those plant limits? I mean, it's sort of honor system unless someone reports them to the police for having too many plants, right? Yeah. And so what happens typically is there's a smell complaint or some sort of a complaint about lots of traffic at all hours of the day, that sort of thing that, you know, that the hallmark signs of maybe something like a illicit operation happening. State and local law enforcement um, have been very good about responding to those complaints and those inquiries for a long time in the medical context. I'm sure they'll continue to do the same um, in the recreational context. We have to go to a break in about a minute here, Matt, so time is, uh, time is running out. But, you know, I, one thing that struck me from uh, watching Steph's reporting on this is just the level of oversight by the state. I mean, there is literally a, I'll call it a control room. I don't know if that's the right word. And I think you've been there before with yes. the cameras and the monitors you're, looking. You can watch <coughs> everything that's going on in it's, these businesses. It's a little Orwellian, a little big brother as you're watching <laughs> these businesses. Um, it, but you're monitoring for security reasons and a lot of regulatory reasons. Um, when retail shops open up, the 30 or so, uh, when they, ever they happen, um, are they going to be monitored as well in the same way, cameras, control room, peering in, that kind of a thing? Yeah, it's very likely that that's the case. I think that, um, again, that'll be spelled out in future regulations, but um, every other state that's regulated um, licensed retail outlets in the adult use context has, has done that. At the end of the day, this is still a valuable, valuable commodity with financial upside for illicit activity. Yeah. Um, and there's a real significant privilege that comes along with having a license to sell cannabis in the state. Uh, of Rhode Island, and along with that comes, you know, some responsibility to be doing it compliantly, 
to not be using your privileges um, to you know further illicit gains, that sort of thing. Um, so, and so I do expect you know that basic same level of oversight and and kind of um, regulatory uh, visibility into what's happening in the shops. All right, Matt Santa Cruz, interim deputy director of the Department of Business Regulation. Thanks very much for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me on, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy to you. Thanksgiving to happy you guys as well. Thank you. When we come back, it's not great news. Food insecurity up is is up in Rhode Island. We're going to have Andrew Schiff from the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. Stay with us, you're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers, I'm Tim White. In for Ted Nisi, Steph Machado, and our guest on the second half of the program from the Rhode Island Community Food Bank, Andrew Schiff. It's good to have you back in the program. Thanks for having me back. Um, so look, the last time we had you on, which is probably almost to the day last year, the picture was a bit rosier. Um, the prevalence of food insecurity in Rhode Island households had dropped down to, if I have it right, 18%. That was In 22, that has shot up to 31%. First, can you Define for people at home, what is food insecurity? And secondly, what is largely driving the uptick in food insecurity? Sure, I, so food insecurity is the inability to afford adequate food. Not having the resources to be able to meet a household's basic food needs. And the thing that's driving it up now, we think, is inflation. Mm -hmm. um, so low-income households, their budgets are squeezed by paying higher rents, higher utility bills, and the high cost of food. In, in the status report, we show that food prices in Rhode Island have gone up 13% in just the past year. And that's, you know, across the board uh, on food items, everybody sees it, and even essential food items like bread, milk, cereal, they're all costing more. Mm. Well, you know, this might, these dire straits might surprise people because you know, programs like SNAP and, and other programs received a ton of money from federal COVID benefits. So, you know, for people at home going, well, what about all that money? What do you say to them? So there are a couple of things on that. One is that some of those COVID relief programs have ended. Right. And actually, we think that that is adding to the problem. Uh, one of the most successful programs during COVID was the expanded child tax credit mm -hmm. that gave low-income families with children extra $3,000 for every child between the ages of six and 18, $3,600 for kids under age six, that program immediately helped. And it- And the state had one too. And the two, state now has a new yeah, one. Yeah, 250, I think, for Just child. for this coming year, yeah. which is a really good thing. The, the federal program was shown to reduce child poverty and to reduce uh, child hunger. Uh, so it was a, that was a very effective program that has ended. Also, another program that's ended is during COVID, school meals were free for all children. All public school meals, school breakfast, school lunch were free. That program ended in September. So I guess how much do we know about whether this increase in demand on the food bank is coming from all of that stimulus money ending and how much of it is coming from inflation or is it just a combination of, the bo of both? It's a combination. When you talk to people though, what's top of mind for them is the high cost of food. Uh, they are seeing it um, every day when they are shopping. And uh, a lot of households that used to be able to pay all their expenses and feed the family are running out of food by the third week of the month and they're running out of money to buy more food. 
that's food insecurity. Mm. Go ahead. Oh, I was just to say, so you had in your hunger report um, a number of different legislative options that could help with this problem, but if you sort of had a magic wand and there was one thing the General Assembly could pass that would help with food insecurity, what would it be? The General Assembly has already done a, a few good things. So there is good news in this report, too. In the coming year, we'd really like to see school meals free again. Um, and that is a combination of maximizing the federal reimbursement that's available for school meals and then the state chipping in. And that would just make the meals free for all kids. And that's what we saw worked during COVID. And it's because nutrition is so important for kids' health, kids' learning. We think it should just be a regular part of the school day. The Rhode Island Community Food Bank, the actual physical structure, uh, people haven't seen it. It's an, um, it's in Providence. It's, I think, right on the line of Cranston. That's in right. Providence. It's a big facility. I've driven by it a few times. Um, and if I recall in talking to you before, a lot of the product, the food that you get, is often, often comes from grocery stores, right, that donate uh, product to the, the food bank. So a couple of things on that. Supply issues, very real problem um, throughout. Has, has that affected the donations coming from big corporate you know, grocery stores into the, the food bank? We've been fortunate that the donations, and they were definitely uh, hung up during COVID. I'm sure. Have, have gone back, the donations from the supermarket industry have gone back and end up being about a third of our inventory. There's another part of our inventory, which is food that we get, that Rhode Island gets, but it comes to the food bank. From the USDA, they're still experiencing major supply chain problems. So what kind of food are we talking about that it gets choked off by the USDA? Like a, a truckload of cereal, you know, basic food that we need at every food pantry. And, you know, it will eventually make its way here, but the delays are really making life difficult for us to get the food out and to supply. We have 140 member agencies, partner organizations across the state and they're looking to us for those sort of basic items. And we are looking to the USDA to make sure that they're getting that food to us. What is sort of the top item that you need? Is it something like cereal? Is it, is it non-perishables? Is it perishable items? We are doing really well in getting uh, fresh produce and uh, fresh food donated to the food bank. So I would say that the holdup is mainly the you know, non-perishable canned items, canned vegetables, cereal, pasta, the basic items that a family needs to make a healthy meal. And what's most useful for people at home that want to donate? Is it to bring in those canned goods and non-perishables or is it to donate money so you can go buy them? Both help. You know, when folks uh, donate money, we can make it go a lot further than often you can when you're donating your own food. Uh, so we you know, recommend that folks go to our website, rifoodbank.org, to donate. Uh, but if you want to come to the food bank and uh, give a bag of groceries, we have a list on our website of the items that we most need. People should check that out. So as you, you talked about, you touched on the, the Community Food Bank Act, sort of this hub, and it sends the product out to providers. That's I think right. you dropped a number of 140 or something like that. That's right. Most people think of food pantries when they think of providers. In your time, I think you've been there for 15 years? That's right. Okay. In your time, has the number of food pantries grown? Has it shrunk? Has it remained about the same? It's remained about the same. It's, you know, there are always changes uh, because these are community-based organizations. Often they're 
they're providing multiple services to the community. Uh, so, th so largely volunteer. And there are volunteer uh, organizations that make up a lot of the food pantries. There are other organizations that are even larger than the food bank, like the community action programs mm -hmm. that provide tons of different services and have a food pantry. They are also partner organizations of the food bank. We uh, have a way for people to get help in Rhode Island, and that's by calling the United Way 211. So anyone who knows someone who needs assistance in Rhode Island, it's really easy. Call 211. You talk to a real person, which I think is always a wonderful mm -hmm. part of 211, <laughs> yeah. who can find out where you live and help direct you to the nearest food pantry. Are you are you are the food pantries strapped for for staff and volunteers right now? Or are they doing okay? They are strapped, I think, primarily for money. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Giving Tuesday is coming up, and I'd say to everybody, look at the organizations that are helping to feed your neighbors and help them out because you know you could just tell from our report that the demand is unbelievably high right now, and and folks need help. Your report showed there was a disparity, a racial disparity, in folks that are uh, food insecure. Uh, what is driving that, and is, is that disparity growing? And we have about 30 seconds left. Sure, so just quickly, communities of color are really hurt by COVID-19 in terms of their health and economic well-being. And so we're seeing that now in that for black and Latino families, food insecurity is significantly higher than for white households. All right, and I want to tell people at home that we have a special on WPRI.com right now that actually you have been interviewed for. It's our newest 12 on 12 digital original, Neighbors in Need. We're taking an in-depth look at the issue of food insecurity, talking to local organizations about how to get help if you need it and the ways you can step up and help others who may be struggling. Neighbors in Need, it's on WPRI.com right now. Andrew Schiff from the Rhode Island Community Food Bank. Thanks so much for joining us. Steph Machano, thanks for joining us. Oh, to both yes. of you, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you at home as well. If you missed any of it, Matt Santa Cruz from the Department of Business Regulation was our first half guest. It's on WPRI.com. I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.